Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Damning climate change report warns of unprecedented devastation in our cities. Victory for saved Latin village after 15 years of campaigning by dedicated community. Central London unable to lift footfall as return to office push lacks enthusiastic uptake. Greenwich Royal Observatory seeks architect for historic upgrade. And programme announced for the 2021 Open House London Festival. My name is Zoe Cave, I am Head of Projects at Open City, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. My special guest this week is Phineas Harper. Finn is an architecture critic and works at Open City, the perfect person to tell us all about the 2021 Open House Festival. Welcome to the show, Finn. Good morning, Zoe. Thanks for having me. Our first story this week grabbed headlines across the globe. The BBC, Guardian, Times, Standard and The Independent are just some of the publications to cover this week's shocking IPCC report, which offers a stark warning for the future of life on Earth. Human activity has changed the climate in unprecedented and irreversible ways, Monday's report warns. The study, which draws on more than 14,000 scientific papers, warns of increasingly extreme heat waves, droughts and flooding, as well as the likelihood of reaching the milestone 1.5 degrees of global heating within just over a decade. It is being described as a, quote, code red for humanity by UN chief Antonio Guterres. Drastic action is needed on a global scale to avoid catastrophic levels of global heating, which could, the report says, wipe out entire countries due to sea level rise. Every inhabited corner of the planet will be impacted by the effects of extreme weather, sea level rise and spread of disease, and cities such as London will be particularly affected due to the urban heat island effect. With increasing density of tall buildings in the London boroughs, more heat will be absorbed and stored and less natural ventilation will be able to take place. Cities with limited parks and green space will be more at risk from flash flooding, heat waves and decreasing air quality. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has said the report shows the next decade is going to be pivotal in securing the future of our planet. The paper was approved by representatives of 192 countries who will now have to work to drastically reduce their carbon emissions in the run-up to the COP26 discussions, which will be held in Glasgow this November. So Finn, this report makes for a sobering read and paints a damning picture of the planet's future. 
Specifically, what does this mean for London? It's gloomy reading indeed, isn't it? The, the IPCC, is the, is the, so this is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Like You couldn't get a more senior um, group of climate scientists. This has become a fam- familiar story, um, but in a way, I, I think it's... It's good that we're having this conversation. You know, if, you, if you're someone like me who kind of grew up um, thinking about climate change and concerned uh, about global heating, um, what was bizarre was like no one was talking about it in the media. It was always this sort of like fringe hippie concern, whereas now it is like th- there isn't a bigger news story. Everybody's talking about it. Politicians are making these enormous declarations. Um, I am you know seriously worried about whether that's enough but i i do think we should um uh remember that even having this conversation at all is like light years ahead of where we were a few years ago uh and is a, a, an extraordinary testament to all the the many activists and many um campaigners and journalists who have kind of taken this this seriously as the warnings have got severe more severe in in london i think there's sort of two things we need to be thinking about and the most important of those is what do we do to radically reduce our carbon emissions in the built environment sector that's that's an enormous issue there isn't anything more important than than that issue but also across all other sectors as well and then the second thing we need to think about is how do we adapt the city to the 1.09 degrees of global heating that we've already experienced um, you know, uh, over the last couple of weeks, there's been sort of extraordinary amounts of, of rain in London, flooding. Uh, we, we saw um, uh, tube stations pretty much underwater due to flooding in the last couple of weeks. We saw Whips Cross Hospital and Newham Hospital. Um, uh, I think Whips Cross was at, without power and had to evacuate patients. Uh, and then Newham had to close its A&E, was asking patients to go to other accident and emergency centers but both of those because they were flooded just adapting to the the climate change that london is already experiencing uh is is a hugely important challenge um not very far away in in europe we've seen heat waves extraordinary heat waves 150 greek islands on fire uh and that those two things that kind of extreme downpours and extreme heat waves uh are both phenomena that are caused by climate change and are going to become increasingly common as the as the temperature as global temperatures rise Um, and there are things we can do to to kind of um, massively cut our carbon emissions but there's also things we need to be doing to um, uh, adapt to those to that extreme weather as it becomes more common in 2018 the mayor of london sadiq khan declared a climate emergency and local authorities across the capital have done so too what actions should policymakers in London be taking in order to ensure we responsibly reduce CO2 emissions in the city and mitigate the impacts of global heating for the London population? In terms of reducing emissions, that's a lot of that is about uh, energy. It's about reducing our energy needs. So we're not drawing so much on power stations, you know, coal-fired power stations or, other, or any power stations. Um, but a lot of it's also about direct emissions. It's about things like... Um, burning petrol to power cars and unfortunately <laughs> what we need to be doing is, is sort of the exact opposite of what some local authorities are doing so you know we saw a few months ago um, uh, local authority Kensington and Chelsea put in a cycle lane 
and then took it out again <laughs> just a few weeks later because ultimately they caved in to the pressure of motorists who didn't like having a cycle lane. You know, we need to stand up to that kind of lobbying. We need to um, say enough is enough. You know, this is an emergency and we, we can no longer afford um, to to kind of take this as a, a, an optional thing that's up for debate. Like we... Uh, the debate is over. Uh, the age of the petrol-powered motor car is also over, and uh, it's time to shift to uh, low-carbon transport across the whole city. So, I, you know, we need to see m far more political leadership, far more political bravery in terms of how to adapt to um, climate change. That's that. That is a <laughs> that we sort of know what the answers are. Uh, it's an, again a question of political will. So, in terms of rain. Um, about 17% of London is at risk of flooding, according to the GLA. Uh, a million Londoners live on floodplains. You might remember London is not new to thinking about flooding. Um, back in the day, we built the, the, I think the GLC built the, the Thames Barrier. And it's thanks to that extraordinary effort that London is relatively safe from flooding. But clearly, climate change has got so bad now that even that extraordinary barrier is no longer enough. But we need a similar level of political will, similar levels of kind of huge investment projects. Um, maybe they don't look like barriers anymore. Maybe they look like um, uh, sustainable urban drainage. So this is where you, 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 you get rid of some of the kind of tarmac and the hard paving that is uh, stopping water from being absorbed by the ground. And you put in more trees, you put in uh, earth, you put in forests and, 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 and flowers and plants. And that kind of soft, squishy earth is then able to absorb all of these floodwaters as, as they pour down. The question of keeping London safe from flooding is not just about what we do in London. It's also about what we do upstream, up the Thames, up the Lee, up these kind of big rivers, up these valleys. Um, so that uh, the people living at the bottom of those valleys are... Uh, uh, are kept safe from that extreme flooding so it's a complex story is what i'm saying there's lots of things that need to happen all across the board um massively cutting emissions massively making kind of new 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 projects but um you, we did it before we built the thames barrier it requires a similar level of political imagination investment now uh, to, to contend with the, the challenges ahead so next question you mentioned earlier specifically that in architecture this is the biggest concern consideration that people should be working to um, some people are asking whether enough is being done within the architecture sector to address the very clear messages being conveyed by this IPCC report what steps do you think need to be taken in reducing the staggering carbon footprint of architecture and city making I don't really think enough is being done we're still seeing kind of some of the biggest most famous most influential architectural practices kind of hesitant about getting on board with uh, the RIBA's climate challenge. Um, I think it's been pointed out to the sector. Uh, the architecture is kind of absent in, in, in the run-up to COP26 and, and how uh, our sector can be involved in, in setting those kind of big um, international agreements. So I think it would be very difficult to say that we're doing enough as a sector. Um, but we do know what we need to do. So there again, there's, there is a lot of hope like, you know, this stuff is not rocket science. Business as usual construction emits about a ton of carbon dioxide per square meter, but that you can massively reduce that 
um, by using different materials. So more timber, more cork, more hemp, more straw, more of these sort of hyper low carbon materials, uh, even carbon sequestering materials uh, need to get specified so that we can bring down the, the embodied carbon of uh, using highly processed materials like steel and concrete. We also know that the, 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 the easiest and most efficient way to reduce the carbon impact of uh, building new buildings is to not build new buildings. You know, reuse the existing buildings. I would support at this stage a ban on demolition. Um, I think, you know, if you want to de demolish something now, uh, the standard should be so high that it's almost impossible. Local authorities stop giving planning permission for any demolitions, except in like extreme exceptional circumstances. I think that would be a very straightforward way to massively reduce carbon emissions and a fascinating design challenge, right? The, 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 the best, uh, you know, I studied architecture and the, the best and most exciting projects are the ones where you have quite a lot of constraints, you know, lots of kind of tricky little challenges to negotiate. And um, one way of, uh, of, of getting those constraints is, is to um, have to retain existing buildings. You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. The Lundown is supported by Adobe, makers of software including Photoshop, InDesign and Audition, the programme we use to edit this show. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash Adobe to sign up for a special discounted subscription to Adobe Creative Suite for as little as 9 99 a month and Adobe will donate to Open City for everyone who signs up. Our next story today was reported across Twitter and in The Guardian. Latin Village, London's only surviving Latin market, has been saved from demolition after the developer pulls out. The indoor market, situated in Tottenham near Seven Sisters Tube Station, was marked for a multi-million pound residential plan by property developers Granger. The scheme, devised in 2008 and approved in 2012, proposed the demolition of the historic wards building and Seven Sisters Indoor Market in order to erect 190 build-to-rent flats with no affordable housing provision. Opponents of the scheme criticised it as a gentrification plan that would displace poorer, ethnically diverse communities from the area. Fifteen years of local opposition and campaigning, which saw the community members forming a human chain around the market, listed as an asset of community value, forced Granger to abandon its development plans. In its place, Seven Sisters Development Trust, formed by local residents, businesses and market tenants, have proposed an alternative community plan for the site. So Finn, what's this all about? What's the point in protecting this indoor market from redevelopment? I, I mean, this is a fantastic story. We have so many kind of <laughs> doom and gloom stories on, on the Lundown, but this is a, a really kind of positive, exciting one. It's a, it's, a, it's a story about a community group winning, or at least winning a battle in a in a long-term campaign um so which you know <laughs> feels very rare and precious uh, against the kind of unstoppable tide of the wrecking ball um so what what's what's going on here is you have a property developer who uh, entered into a, a a deal with the local authority to um buy up this uh bit of street and turn it into a, a bunch of housing but that wasn't a kind of you know 
uh, neutral thing this is this is a, a this particular area is is one of london's only kind of clusters of, of of latin of a latin community and includes the seven sisters indoor market which uh, you know is this um fascinating place right it's a sort of extraordinary uh very kind of dense uh, mix of um lots of different traders lots of different shops all sharing this one indoor market uh, it, it's definitely worth visiting if you've never been you know indoor markets used to be a big part of um kind of the british urban uh form um but have been increasingly pushed out or massively gentrified in places where land values are very high like in uh like in london and then this particular market is is even more interesting because it has become this kind of nexus this hub of um the latin community who i don't know have have been like actively targeted by the forces of gentrification recently and um just lost very important community hub in the elephant and castle shopping center which is now as we're talking being demolished um and so this was one of the last remaining uh spaces that could be called a kind of um center of latin culture in london um and that's why it is so exciting that after a 15 year campaign against this development proposal it does seem like the developers have given up the councils changed their mind and potentially this community-led alternative plan will be the one that goes forward instead um can you shed some light on how they how they did it well hard hard bloody work is, is how they did it so i mean this this it is actually shocking the um the the effort that was required to defend this indoor market um so you know just some of the things that uh, the community has done over the, over the last 15 years um they established uh, a trust the west green road and seven sisters development trust they established a community interest company the save latin village and wards corner community interested company they ha- they ran a legal defense fund um they submitted a alternative community plan uh, which they made a planning application for, which included over 500 documents submitted to the council, many of those um, letters from local residents and businesses uh, in support of the alternative plan. But then, of course, they also drew up like an enormous uh, architectural proposal for the alternative plan and worked with local architects to develop those schemes. Um, they are very effective campaigners. Uh, they got a lot of interest from journalists. Uh, you know, they even got the attention of the the UN. Right, so twice the UN um, issued statements in support of the indoor market and the the the, the Latin village. So, an astonishing amount of work and effort uh, from the community there and their supporters. Uh, which maybe tells us that it, it really just how hard it is to to sort of stem the tide of development what a lot of effort goes into it um, and why so many campaigns to to prevent uh, demolition or redevelopment are ultimately unsuccessful because they just can't match this level of work that's that is that is required that interesting because that kind of holds granger's quote into a different light because granger said one of the reasons for their withdrawal from the project was due to the numerous challenges implemented by a quote small yet vocal minority 
Um, what's your take on that? Was it a small minority or is there a bigger movement at play here? Yeah, I really love that the the developers have called the UN <laughs> part of a small minority. <laughs> Obviously, it's not a small common community. This is a huge deal. There's a lot of support for the the Latin village. Really, the reason Granger have, have backed out is because at some level, even if it's not in the press release, they must have realised that the movement to save the Latin village is big and is only growing. Um, but I do think there's, there's a couple of like very interesting things that we can uh, take from from the UN's intervention. Uh, so they made two big interventions, one in, the, in 2017, one in 2019. Um, and they say, and I want to quote them, uh, we're concerned that according to reports, this treatment appears to be particularly targeted people of latin american origin and descent and includes language with racial discriminatory undertones so they're talking about um the way that this uh development has been targeted at this particular community um so i think that's interesting because it's showing that there is this direct link between these top-down regeneration projects which are about sort of breaking up a working class community uh and bringing in uh, um you know more affluent middle class people there's a link between that and discrimination based on race and other forms of, of prejudice. Um, and the, the second thing I was struck by in the UN quote, uh, I'm going to quote again, they say, we urge the authorities to investigate and where necessary sanction such behaviour to protect the affected people from abuse or infringement of their human rights. Who are those authorities, right? The UK's Secretary of State for Housing, Communities and Local Government dismissed uh, the relevance of any possible disadvantages to the Latin community caused by the redevelopment. So they've got no allies in national government. Uh, the land is owned by Transport for London, who are in turn owned by the Greater London Authority, which is London's governing body. And in 2008, Haringey, the local authority, gave Granger planning permission to knock down the building on the corner of the site and in fact agreed to use a compulsory purchase order to take possession of the bits of the site that Granger had been unable to purchase for themselves, which was key in enabling the redevelopment project in the first place. So we have the local authority, the city authority and the national government all at one point or another working alongside the property developers to kill the Latin village and boot out its community. So I find it very weird that the UN is calling on the authorities to protect the Latin community because it is precisely those authorities who are engaged in endangering the community in the first place. Our next story was reported in City AM and is all to do with the government's push to get Londoners back into the office. Recent figures from the Centre of Cities think tank show that footfall in central London remains extremely low at around 34% of pre-pandemic levels. Meanwhile, Rishi Sunak has renewed calls for young workers to go back to the office now that the government's work-from-home order has been dropped. The Chancellor, who was previously an investment banker in the city, recalled how his early career was helped by making relationships in the office with older colleagues. We reached out to London Property Alliance, one of Open City's principal partners, for this story, and a spokesperson told us, quote, it is not only vital for the economy of workers to return to their offices, but also for a whole host of other reasons, including mental health and supporting younger staff whose careers have been adversely impacted by the pandemic. The spokesperson continued, 
People meeting and collaborating in workspaces boosts creativity and productivity and supports the local businesses ecosystem. Across central London, every 100 office workers help support 18 jobs in retail, hospitality and leisure. Meanwhile, Downing Street has repeated sentiments saying that it would leave employers and employees to decide whether or not to continue working remotely. Many financial institutions have since said they will continue to operate under a hybrid model, allowing for employees to continue working from home several days a week. Finn, only some occupations are possible to be carried out remotely. Um, The service industries, hospitality, teaching, healthcare, uh, to name a few, cannot be carried out via Zoom. Do you think this disparity between in-person jobs and home working industries could lead to some sort of health gap of some kind? What's your comment on that? Yeah, it's a very good point. And um, I think there, you know, there's there's loads of workers who have never had the opportunity to work from home. And I do find it a little frustrating to see certain professional sectors getting kind of very irate about their bosses asking them to work more from the office while still kind of doing nothing to uh, appreciate and support other workers who have no choice but to work outside of their home so you know a very simple thing we should all be doing is just like tipping delivery drivers which almost nobody does but does you know it means something to those people and, and makes a difference um so i guess my advice is um you know if you are someone who's who's a bit stuck working from home um you know probably try and get back out in the world somehow explore it gently reconnect with colleagues maybe once a week or something like that but do it in a way that makes sense for you and is enjoyable rather than the gammon on tv um sort of lecturing you or hectoring you um but however you manage that transition please come on let's start appreciating all those workers who can't work from home because ultimately if you are able to stay at home all day that is because someone else hasn't Someone else has gone to the power station to run it to give you electricity. Someone has repaired the mobile phone mask that gives you phone signals. Someone is bringing you food. Someone is bringing you stuff. Um, So all of us who are lucky enough to be able to work from home depend on an entire constellation of others who are not. And I think we do need to sort of appreciate that a little bit more uh, in, in this debate. Our fourth story this week was covered by the AJ and is all to do with the Greenwich Observatory revamp. The National Maritime Museum has announced a £4.5 million revamp of the landmark Royal Observatory, for which it is seeking an architect for an estimated £450,000 contract. The selected team will oversee an ambitious upgrade of the Grade 1, Grade 2 and Grade 2 star-listed buildings, which make up the historic astronomical and navigational complex. The project aims to improve visitor facilities and create a new extension to the world-famous attraction, which is a scheduled monument located within the Grade 1 listed Greenwich Park and Maritime Greenwich UNESCO World Heritage Site. The latest project, combining master planning, site improvements and new galleries, coincides with the Greenwich Royal Observatory's 350th anniversary in 2025. The site is believed to be the oldest public park in the country, formerly Henry VIII's hunting ground. It was re-landscaped by Andrew Lenotre during the 17th century and opened to the public in the 1700s. 
Finn, can you paint a picture of the historical importance of the Greenwich Observatory and why this is such an important and significant revamp for London's cultural map? Sure. I mean, yeah, like grade one, grade two and grade two star list. It's got all the listings. That sort of gives you a sense of, of how much kind of special stuff is going on in this place. Okay, so Charles II commissioned this Royal Observatory, um, you know, 350 years ago. Christopher Wren picks the site and for hundreds of years, it's this kind of centre of astronomical observation and measurement. But it also is playing the civic role. It's also kind of inviting the public to, to come up into this royal park. And it plays a kind of a, a kind of cultural role as well as a scientific one. Um, and it's just got this kind of amazing collection of quite bizarre Georgian and Victorian buildings because they're all trying to to do the two things at once. They're all trying to be a kind of civic building, but also be a kind of scientific device. So a lot of them have huge telescopes on their roof. Um, one marks the prime meridian line. Um, another has this enormous red ball, which is a time ball, which is a kind of pre-clock, pre-public clock a time marking device that goes up and down this pole to mark um, noon every day and then of course it's looking down a hill at Inigo Jones's Queen's House beyond that Wren and Hawksmoor's Old Royal Naval College and beyond that the entire skyline of London so it is an astonishingly potent context and quite an intimidating one to to try and design for. Uh, I think it was interesting in in 2006, which was kind of the last time they did a big new architectural project there. It was a planetarium. It was designed by Allies and Morrison. I think it's one of their their best projects. Um, it's this kind of black patinated cone, and a really good contribution to that site. It doesn't try to kind of compete with or, or outshow the the wacky scientific kit uh you know i, I don't envy the architects who are going to win this because it's going to be a, a seriously difficult uh job finn for you what are some successful and less successful examples of upgrades to historic buildings in london what can we learn from previous projects there's a golden thread running throughout this show which is about not knocking things down and doing like really good refurbishments instead so a couple of kind of standout examples somerset house you know this sort of um if i think it was finished in 1800 1801 um largely housed civil servants for for a very long time and they used the main courtyard of somerset house as a car park and then finally um with the turn of the millennium uh they got some money from the new government kick out all the cars kick out the inland revenue and donald insull associates transforms this this car park into a public square and it's now one of the most successful um public squares of its kind i think uh, it was where as devlin um did that big installation when she planted a, a a kind of cluster of trees in the summer as part of the london design festival um so it's become a kind of center of culture a center of uh design um and an enormously successful public space uh, and then perhaps one of the best upgrades best upgrades that you know Howard Tompkins bat uh, at the, the Battersea Art Centre, a very long running collaboration between the Art Centre and uh, this particular architect, uh, making lots of lots of significant adjustments all over the complex, but also after that disastrous fire that gutted the main hall of um, 
Battersea Art Centre, Howarth Tompkins kind of remade uh, that that auditorium, put in a new roof and new, new seating. Um, and now it's a world-class arts venue. Well, I think it is anyway. Uh, and that's that. That's an upgrade project. That wasn't built from scratch. That was a, a refurbishment. Finally, Open City has launched its full programme of events and venues for this year's Open House Festival. The festival, which celebrates London's remarkable architecture and urban landscape, will run will run from Saturday the 4th of September to Sunday the 12th of September, with hundreds of events and tours taking place across all 33 London boroughs. Landmark buildings opening for free to the public will include City Hall, 10 Downing Street, Trellick Tower, Millennium Mills, 1 Canada Square and Trinity House. Visitors can expect to see buildings, landscapes, infrastructure and community projects from across the capital open up to the public for the first time since the start of the pandemic, alongside a city-wide cultural programme for all ages and abilities, including numerous outdoor events. This year's Open House Festival will include a particular focus on London's pubs and breweries, which have suffered during the pandemic, with a publication of a new book, Public House, A Cultural and Social History of the London Pub, celebrating over 120 remarkable pubs across all 33 boroughs. Finn, can you tell listeners a bit more about what they can look forward to in this in the festival this year? I would be delighted. Uh, there are so many amazing things. I was looking through the programme, which is live now listeners it went live yesterday um it's live now you can book for for most things there might be a few more things coming in but uh, essentially the program is up it's all at openhouselondon.org.uk slash 2021 um and there's so many cool things to go to um i i, I have to confess I, you know i would i work for open city i was a little bit worried that there'd be so many buildings who who you know just couldn't open up this year um and i am absolutely uh thrilled that that's not the case that so many buildings so many people have made it work londoners have figured it out it's a bumper year for walking tours i think walking tours are having a kind of like renaissance uh so i think there's over a hundred walking tours um but there's also lots of kind of traditional open house stuff to go and see. Uh, it's amazing that Downing Street's back in the mix, but also City Hall, but also the Guild Hall. So we have three centres of government, national government, uh, city government and borough government, all kind of opening up for public visits. Fab, any personal highlights or favourite events um, and buildings taking place for you? I am going to um, definitely go to Walter's Way. This is this uh, self-built um, housing scheme in Lewisham, bunch of bunch of council tenants in the in in the eighties were given the opportunity to build their own homes um, in collaboration with the German architect Walter Siegel, and they did an extraordinary job. You know, all the houses are a bit different, um, but they've um, over time they've 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 kind of fostered a really strong sense of community, and um, uh, they usually put on quite a show for the open house festival so it's fab that they're back in the mix and they are doing a book launch they've written a book about that street uh, about what it's like living on the street and what it was like building the street with walter um and that will be that that book launch is happening as part of the part of the festival beckon tree estate this is an extraordinary place one of the largest estates in the world when it was built um 1921 was when the first houses were completed so this is a hundredth anniversary it's a local uh, london county council scheme Twenty-seven thousand homes enormous under 
appreciated in in my view um it was kind of the part of the post-world war one homes for heroes scheme where um the government kind of recognized that so many people had sacrificed so much during this this horrible war um and then were returning to kind of basically slum conditions uh if if they survived the war and so this was part of an enormous investment to kind of upgrade the housing stock of the nation after world war one um and as as part of the open house festival this year the artist verity jane keefe is leading a walk across the estate um as part of a pro- project she's doing there called living together uh that's part of this kind of centenary celebration uh i think you know she's a brilliant artist it's a fascinating place i think that's definitely worth getting on if you can get a ticket nice and um finn why are pubs being spotlighted in this year's festival pubs have had a rotten uh pandemic uh they've been knocked around by lots of changing regulations um and so we decided to um make a book celebrating london's pubs um it's called public house a cultural and social history of the london pub and it's edited by david knight and christina montero uh I think it's a it's an amazing book. It features all sorts of different writers, some some brewers, some architects, some historians, politicians, each writing about pubs in London in 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 different ways. There's over 120 pubs kind of discussed in the book. And I guess what we're really trying to do is is tell the story of London through its pubs and kind of make the the argument that London's pubs are not just, you know, the hospitality sector they're not just part they're not just kind of businesses that trade but they are they are civic places they are cultural places they play a role as community centers to some extent they they are um they are inseparable from the kind of cultural life of london and um that they should be celebrated in in that spirit uh i think there's been a lot of discussion in the media about pubs are great because they're 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 good employers <laughs> or they're like nice to go to but they also play this uh, they, they are a kind of social glue as well or they can be at their best um and so that that's a kind of uh we're trying to use this the book but also the festival itself uh to really kind of spotlight pubs and celebrate that role that they play in, in london's wider um wider cultural life that sounds great, Finn. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about how they access the festival, how they navigate it, everything like that? There's one website. Uh, it is openhouselondon.org.uk slash 2021. From there, you can access uh, the programme. You can access all the kind of links. You can even, if, if you if you want to be part of the programme, there's still some time to for some last minute inclusions. So if you want to um, get your flat in the show or get a building you've designed in the show, there's still time. Uh, so openhouselondon.org.uk slash 2021 and I will see you there great thank you so much for being our special guest this week Finn my pleasure you've been listening to The Lundown a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London if you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. 
Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.